Well, good morning again and welcome now, not only to those of you who are here with us in the traditional sanctuary, but also to those of you who are joining us in our contemporary service and also via broadcast. I'm glad that we're all able to learn from God's Word together as one family this way. And while you're getting settled for the message, I invite you to take out your study guide that's in your worship bullet, and there's an outline there on the front that you can use to follow along as we go through the message today. And also, if you have a Bible with you, now's a great time to take out a Bible and follow along with some of the passages that we'll be reading together this morning. As we're getting started here, I want to do it. Could you uh, answer a question for me? Just a quick show of hands. How many of you have ever been to Disney World? Have you been to Disney World or maybe even Disneyland or one of those Disney properties? Yeah, I'm always surprised. That's a lot of people. A lot of people have been. You know, my family got to go to Disney World for the first time about a year ago, uh, maybe the only time. I'm not making any promises here, but uh, we got to go to Disney World about a year ago because my mother-in-law gave us a very generous gift, and we went down for a five-night, six-day trip and had a great time. And one of the things that I noticed, and I'm sure that you know, and whether you've been there or not, you probably know that Disney World is a huge place, and it's got like everything, this whole variety of stuff. I decided to look this up because I wanted to know how big it was. I looked up the actual physical size of Disney World. It has more total square miles than several small European countries. No kidding. And I looked up the amount of people who are at Disney World. If you take away all the guests, everybody who actually pays to go there, and leave only the employees, because when I was there, I'm a curious guy, so I had to ask, how many employees are there? There's 60,000 employees at Disney World, Orlando only. That's more than 10 individual U.S. state capital cities, okay? This is a huge place. And if you expect to experience anything of the breadth, anything of the fullness, if you will, of what Disney World has to offer, you're going to need help. You're going to need a plan. You're going to need a, a guide of some kind. And so we turned to some friends in our community group who had turned to some friends of theirs who had gotten some tips on make sure you see this and make sure you don't miss that because it's way over there and you won't even know that it's there if nobody tells you. And that was really helpful to us because I think that left to our own devices and, and the tastes of our children, we might have done nothing but ride Space Mountain 30 times a day, you know, if that's, that's all we had to go on. Maybe that might have been my choice or my daughter's choice. We might have just gone to one musical show after another after another. Not my choice. Might have been Amy's choice. We might have done that. We might have gotten all consumed with all the entertainment options, the rides and the shows, and never would have even noticed all the educational opportunities that are available at Epcot Center, although maybe I would have majored in that. But all those things are valuable by themselves. They're all good things. But have you ever heard that saying about how even your own favorite ice cream flavor will eventually make you sick if that's all you eat over and over again? Now, I'm willing to test that theory at some point, especially if it starts with triple chocolate. I would give that a go. But to experience something of the full breadth of what was there on offer, we needed a plan and some help from people who had been there before. I think living the Christian life is like that in a number of ways, actually. To experience the full breadth, the range of experience and depth that goes along with being a disciple of Jesus, it helps to have a plan and it helps to learn from people who have gone there before you. And today, we are starting a brand new, very ancient worship journey. Because today is the first day of the year. Happy New Year, everyone. It is the first day of the Christian year. It's the first Sunday, the season of Advent, which is the season that leads up to Christmas every year. And it seems a little funny or confusing, maybe, to be starting a new year just when the main year that we think we know about is coming to a close in one more month. And that honestly used to frustrate me a little bit as I felt like I had to explain that and why do we do it that way. But I began to think a while ago that, you know, schools use a different calendar that helps them accomplish their specific purposes. And a lot of the businesses that you all are involved in use specific fiscal years that are suited to the purposes you're trying to accomplish. 
And it's not only okay, it can be very helpful that we would have a, a Christian year, a calendar that helps us learn to live the Christian life. In fact, when the Christians first began marking time in a unique way, when those first disciples of Jesus, after Jesus had been crucified and raised from the dead and ascended to sit at the right hand of God, they began to count time in a different way. But their first calendar didn't even last for a whole year. They really began with a week. They met at least once a week to pray together, to, to worship together, to listen to the apostles who had been with Jesus tell the stories of his life, that they would continue to grow in discipleship to him. And they would always celebrate the Lord's Supper together, the meal that he had given them in memory of himself. And they usually did this on Sunday. They called it the Lord's Day because that was the day of the week that Jesus had been raised from the dead. And so if you have your study guide there, there's an outline on the front. And on that first line, line number one, would you just write down weekly worship? Because weekly worship is at the heart of the rhythm or the way that Christians mark time and has been for thousands of years. And your commitment, your presence here today, and your commitment to weekly worship is a way that we apply that truth in our own lives and continue to live in continuity with those disciples of Jesus who have gone so long before us. But then, before long, those early Christians, they began to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus not only on the Lord's Day every week, but they reserved an annual celebration of Jesus being raised from the dead. And that usually happened in the springtime, around the Jewish holiday of Passover, because that was the time that Jesus had been crucified and raised from the dead. And eventually they came to call that holiday Easter, and it became the high point of their year every year. And then in addition to celebrating that God had raised Jesus from the dead, they began to celebrate that Jesus had come into the world at all, that he had been revealed to the world or entered into the world. And they called that holiday at first Epiphany. They called it epiphany like you might have an epiphany, like when you see or understand something you never saw or understood before. It's like having an epiphany. But they said it's like the world had an epiphany when they saw God in the face of Jesus Christ. So they celebrated this holiday, but eventually they began to celebrate that. They added to that celebration a celebration specifically of the birth of Jesus. But nobody at that point remembered when Jesus had been born, what his birthday was. People didn't always mark birthdays in quite the same way that we do in our day and age right now. And so they decided to celebrate it in late December for a variety of reasons, actually. But one of those reasons was because it's the darkest time of year. Night is the longest. And so they celebrated the entry of the light of the world into the world when the darkness was at its greatest. They began to call that Christmas. And so they celebrated the Christmas holiday together. And then pretty soon they started to put seasons before and after these major holidays so that they would prepare their hearts for those holidays and they could extend the celebration afterward. So they started to build up these longer seasons. And then eventually God revealed to them that one day there would be such a thing called Walmart and that they would sell plastic reindeer in October to help them stretch out the celebration even longer. Yeah, I made that part up. That's not true. The point of all this is that the Christian year is meant to take us on a journey every year through the life of Jesus, through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, and his ongoing reign as king of heaven and earth. And, and this is a very important thing that I think it's easy for us to miss, the Christian year is designed to take us through a journey, through a full range of the breadth of experiences that we might experience as a disciple of Jesus. And so there are seasons and days of expectation and fulfillment, seasons and days of, of mourning and celebration, 
seasons of reflection and seasons of action and, and seasons, I would say, of something that you might call just dailiness or, or ordinariness. Seasons to help equip you to live for the long haul of faithfulness to Jesus, even when nothing remarkable seems to be happening at all. This is the journey of the Christian year. It helps, learn, helps keep us grounded in the story of Jesus, to learn to live in the way of Jesus, and to help us develop a, a well-rounded, fully broad, grown-up relationship with Christ. And so what I'd like to do is just spend a few minutes giving you a little preview of where we're going to be going in this year, this year that we are calling the way of Jesus. But in my mind, I also sometimes am thinking of it as a year in the life, a year in the life of a disciple of Jesus. So let me give you a little preview of this year before we spend a few minutes at the end taking just the first baby step of the journey today. The Christian year starts with a season called Advent. Today is the first Sunday of the season of Advent. And on your outline there, where it says 2A, you can write Advent. It's the first season of the Christmas year. Now, I know this is countercultural. I know that every shopping mall in America thinks this holiday is already called Christmas. And, and by Christmas, what they really mean is retail and flashing lights. But in the Christian community, we call this time Advent. We're still looking forward to Christmas. We are practicing the skill of expectation. We are practicing the skill of waiting. We're going to get to say more about this for the next several Sundays. So for right now, let's just let's suffice it to say that we could use in our culture a little practice in waiting. And what we are waiting for is, of course, Christmas. And so on line 2B of that outline right there, you can write Christmas Christmas is the day that comes at the end of Advent we're looking forward to. It is also a season, the 12 days of Christmas. Christmas is a season that lasts for 12 days. And it's kind of a bummer, I think. We often miss the season of Christmas. It just disappears at the end of December between Christmas Day, New Year's Eve, New Year's Day, and that high holiday in my life, college football bowl game day. Right? It's easy to miss the 12 days of Christmas. Somebody after the last worship service caught me afterward and said, you know, at my workplace, we celebrate the 12 days of treats because we're not allowed to say Christmas, but we celebrate that season. Celebrating treats, the season of Christmas. After Christmas comes another season, and it's called Epiphany. So you can write down the word Epiphany where it says to see. And Epiphany is a season of light. It begins every year on January the 6th, 12 days after Christmas. It's a season where we remember especially that the light of God shined into the darkness of our world. And this year, during the season of Epiphany, we're going to be reading some stories that are like portraits in the life of Jesus, mostly from the Gospel of John this year. It'll be kind of like holding up a gem or a diamond in the light and turning it and seeing just one facet at a time, one after another. It's the season of Epiphany. Epiphany always begins in January, usually stretches partway into February, depending on some of the dates that come later in the year. But after Epiphany comes the season of Lent. And on your outline, if you'd like, on 2D, you can write the word Lent. Now, if you were raised as a Christian, and I know not all of us were, but if you were raised as a Christian, particularly in a church in the Lutheran or Catholic tradition, you've probably heard of Lent before. If you've been a part of this church community for any number of years, I'm sure you've heard of Lent before. And one of the things I think is so funny about Lent is that here in the great state of Minnesota, where more people were raised Lutheran and Catholic than in lots of other places, there are still memories of Lent outside the church. It is the season when you can get a good deal on a fish fry all over town, right? Or my favorite, you can get a good deal on a filet fish sandwich at the Golden Arches, which makes Lent something of a season of feasting for me instead of fasting, I have to admit. But that all comes from an old tradition 
of not eating any other kind of meat during the season of Lent other than fish. And we can talk about that when Lent comes. For right now, the most important thing to know is that Lent is meant to be a season of reflection, maybe even introspection. It's a season of contemplation of the cross of Christ and all that that meant for Him and all that that means for us. And Lent is going somewhere, even in itself, even before we get to the big holiday at the end. Lent climaxes with two big days called Maundy Thursday and Good Friday, the day on which Jesus died. And even as we're looking months ahead right now, I'd encourage you just to mark your mental calendar to be in worship on those days and to walk in the way of Jesus as part of this marking of Christian time. But Lent is a season that's aiming somewhere beyond itself. It's aiming to the next season of the Christian year. And if you'd like, on line 2E, you can mark down Easter. We celebrate the day of Easter, Resurrection Day. We remember when God raised the faithful Son of God from the dead. We celebrate the most important thing that that has happened in the history of planet Earth. And now we call it Easter. God raised Jesus from the dead. And Easter is not only a day, but it is a season. And oftentimes we forget this one too, just like the season of Christmas. I guess the day is so big, we forget there's a season afterward. But according to the usual Christian calendar, Easter is a season that stretches on for 50 days. And and we lose track of that because, you know, summer's coming and school is out. and We've got all kinds of other things to do. But this year especially, we're going to pay attention to that season. And we're going to read the stories of the risen Jesus' appearances to his disciples. And consider what it means that the power of life over death has been unleashed in our own lives. It's the season of Easter. We celebrate because Jesus is alive. And then even though Jesus is alive, he didn't remain living in this earthly realm, did he? Instead, we remember that Jesus ascended to sit at the right hand of God the Father in royal authority. And there are two holidays that come right near the end of the Easter season. The holiday of Ascension and Pentecost. And they happen 40 days and 50 days after Easter. And Ascension, we remember Jesus ascending to sit at the right hand of God the Father in kingly authority. And on Pentecost, we remember the time when God poured out his spirit on his church, on men and women, young and old alike, on all his people, and empowered us with his presence. And we begin thus with the season of Pentecost. And if you'd like to write on line 2F, you can write Pentecost as the last season of the Christian year. It begins with these two holidays of Ascension and especially with the holiday of Pentecost. When we think, if I asked you, what are the two biggest holidays in the Christian year? Most people would say Christmas and Easter, just right off the bat. And and it's hard to argue with that. And Easter, I definitely wouldn't argue with. But I'd put Ascension and Pentecost right up there with Christmas. Because those are the days that mean for us and teach us what it means to live under the authority of Jesus and under the power of his spirit in our lives every day. They have changed the world. And the season of Pentecost goes on for a long time. It stretches all the way from usually sometime in mid to late May, all the way till Advent starts over again, four weeks before Christmas. It can be up to 29 weeks long in the range of six months or so. And Pentecost is the time that we focus especially on learning the whole story of the life of Jesus, his life on this earth, and what it means for us to live under his authority and in the presence and power of his spirit right now. There are some Christian traditions who call the season of Pentecost ordinary time. They call it ordinary time. And while there's nothing ordinary about living as a disciple of Jesus in a world that does not honor Jesus as Lord, yet I really like that name because it evokes for us the image of living our ordinary, everyday lives in the way of Jesus. 
And so this Christian year, this, this way of looking at a year in the life of a disciple of Jesus has both its joys and its challenges. In fact, there's one thing that the Christian year is really bad at. It's really bad at instant gratification. You don't get everything you need or want all at once. It doesn't come all at one time, all on one Sunday, even all in one season. Most of what you need to be a disciple of Jesus comes over the course of one whole year, but that's a lot longer than people like us are used to waiting for stuff. We know what we want, and we want it now, and so that's a challenge for us. But at the same time, I think it's a real joy because a tool like the Christian year can grow us deeper and stronger for the long haul of Christian faithfulness to Jesus because we grow over time. It kind of reminds me of that old story, maybe you've heard it, about the, the mushroom and the oak tree. That A lot of species of mushrooms can grow up to their full size in a matter of hours, but it takes an oak tree decades to get where it's going. And here on this day, you have the freedom to be a fungus if you want to. Just go right ahead. But most of us would choose oak tree, and it takes time to grow. And so I think it's perfect that the Christian year begins for us with Advent, with a season of waiting, expecting. Because we need to learn to wait. We're not very good at waiting. Waiting makes us itchy. Waiting makes us impatient. The action-oriented among us have a very hard time waiting. I decided to do a little bit of reading just about waiting in the last few weeks just to think about that. I came across this quotation. I'm going to share it with you here. It says that waiting, somebody said this, wrote it actually. They wrote that waiting makes men into bears in a barn and makes women into cats in a sack. I don't know what that means, but I think it means we're bad at waiting. It means we need to learn how to wait better. It's hard for us to wait in our culture. But we need to learn to wait because there are things that cannot be had instantly. There are things that cannot be attained at a moment's notice. They take time. And often, they are the most important things in life. And so during this season of Advent, for these four Sundays, we're going to be reading some passages from the Bible and learning to wait as the people of God have waited over the years. Because one of the things that it means to wait well is not only to learn and practice the skill of waiting, but it means to know what's worth waiting for. And today, we are learning, just briefly from the Bible, about the topic of waiting for God's justice. And now, because I've spent so much of my time telling you about the Christian year, I'm going to talk to you about waiting as quickly as I possibly can, waiting, waiting in a big hurry, okay? The Bible teaches us that God's world isn't right. This world that we live in, it's not right, at least not right now. Things are broken. Things are not as they should be. I want to just give you a few examples of how the Bible diagnoses that condition of our world. The first reading has come from the book of Ecclesiastes. If you want to turn there with me to follow along, there's going to be one from Ecclesiastes 7:15 and one from chapter 8. And they're on page 966 and also 968 of your Quest Bible. The first one from Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 15 says this, In this meaningless life of mine, we're off to a good start there, aren't we? In this meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these, the righteous perishing in their righteousness, and the wicked living long in their wickedness. This is just not right. And then Ecclesiastes 8.14, in the very next chapter, it's 9.68 in your Quest Bibles, Ecclesiastes says, there's something else meaningless that occurs on earth. The righteous who get what the wicked deserve, and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is meaningless. It's not right. Those of you who are in community groups, you're going to read 
a passage this week from your community group study guide that's actually in your hands right now from the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk, who a long time ago complained to God, who lamented, who prayed to God and said, God, the world isn't right. What are you going to do about it? And you get to read part of God's answer for that season. And then there's this story from the life of Jesus that says that God is putting the world back together again. He's making it right in Jesus. We read this story in both of our worship services today. John the Baptist sent his disciples to Jesus to say, Jesus, you're not what I expected. Are you the one we should expect? Or should we be waiting for somebody else? And Jesus, by way of answer, says, look what God's doing in me, how he's putting the world back together again. This is what it says in Luke chapter 7, verses 22 and 23. Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Jesus said that in him God was beginning what some people call the great cleanup. God was taking a world that he had made right, that had gone so badly wrong, and making it right again. But the giant surprise and the hard thing for us to relate to, both with our minds and with our hearts, is that he didn't finish the job. He didn't finish it yet. It's not all done being made right. We live with the tension and the pain of that all the time. And it's the biggest surprise in the whole Bible story. In the big God story that runs from Genesis to Revelation, the biggest surprise in the plot is that God didn't finish the job when he sent the Messiah. All of Jesus' Jewish contemporaries were looking forward to God making the world right again. They were looking forward to this. They had a word for it. I'm going to teach you a word here in worship this morning. This is your first lesson in biblical Hebrew. Aren't you excited? You never have to use this again, I promise. But repeat this word after me. They were looking forward to ha-olam haba. Say ha-olam haba. Ready? Ha-olam haba. You never have to say it again. It means the world to come. They were looking forward to the world to come. When God would make everything right again, the world as it is was not there, but the world to come would be that way. And they looked forward to the time when God would raise from the dead his faithful people who died while they were waiting for Haolam Haba, while they were waiting for God's world to come, God's restored creation. And then God sent his son, his faithful Messiah, the king, and he began to make things right again. He healed those things that were diseases. He welcomed the outsiders. He forgave sinners. He began the great cleanup. And then when the, when the evil powers of this world killed Jesus and he died on a Roman cross, God raised him from the dead and he began to pour out his spirit on all believers. But he did not finish the job. And he did not raise all the dead of his faithful people. Instead, when God gave his spirit to us, which is one of the promises of the Old Testament, that God would pour out his spirit on all people, men and women, young and old, instead he handed the work back to us and said, carry it on now while you wait for me to come back and finish it. And here we are in this period of waiting and working. And I bet that in this period there are certain parts of the injustice of our world certain parts of the not-rightness of our world that break your heart more than others. I think God sets us up that way. I think God creates and conditions us each differently to care about certain parts of the not-rightness of his world so that while, we'll, while we wait, we'll work on it. The waiting and the working go together. 
I know some of you have talked to me about how your hearts are broken, especially for the Project Home guests who are here with us in this church. Your hearts break all the way to the bottom to think that there are moms and dads and kids who don't have a permanent place to stay, who are looking for jobs and don't have a safe roof over their heads. I bet you're involved in our Operation Home Ministries or you've signed up to be a part of this particular Project Home Initiative. Or maybe now's the time to do that. Or, or maybe God's putting on your heart to be involved in something like this even beyond what the rest of our church family is involved in. I bet some of your hearts are broken even in a special way differently for global issues. Not just those right here, but for all around God's world. And you know, as a church family, as a church community, we have this partnership in Haiti that I'm so proud of the work that they do at Mission of Hope. That they're not only meeting the needs of widows and orphans right now, but working together for long-term structural change, trying to empower the people of Haiti to change Haiti's future. And maybe you're a, an active participant in that partnership, or maybe you're doing something else the rest of the church family isn't doing because that's something God's made you care about, and maybe it's even in a different part of the world. Maybe you're somebody whose heart and mind particularly care about the legal structures of injustice in our society. And I know that a lot of Christians and a lot of Christian churches, that there have been examples over the years of Christians who have kind of lost their bearings on that and have gotten lost in the games of power politics. But oh, there are also great examples of Christians around the world and throughout the ages that have made our world a, a more just and more God-pleasing place by means of their civic engagement. And people like that, of course, is a part of our own congregation. And maybe what God has put on your heart is to be involved in working for justice through the structures of our society. We do these things while we wait. The waiting and the working, they go together. Sometimes I worry that the working cancels the waiting, but I think that's not true. Because you know you can tell what we're really, what we're really waiting for by the way that we work for it. And in my experience, it's when you really put your shoulder to the work of cooperating with God's justice in this world that you realize how deep the brokenness is and you wait on God's power to bring a solution, a final cleanup for this thing that we can never wholly do on our own. The bottom line of this whole thing is this. God has made a promise to make his world right again, to restore justice, peace and righteousness, goodness and love in his world. And that is a promise to all of us who have suffered under the pain of injustice in one way or another. It's a promise. And it's also an invitation. It's an invitation to cooperate with the work of God in this world, to continue to carry on the work that God had given his human creatures from the very, very beginning. The appropriate posture of waiting and work is one of prayer. Let's close this time of reflection on God's word in prayer. Good and gracious God, we thank you for all the ways that you work in our lives, the seasons of life through which you move us. God, I pray that during this next year you would work in our hearts and help us grow up in our faith and in our discipleship to Jesus through the use of this tool of the Christian year. And God, today especially, I pray that you would teach us to wait, to wait well, to wait holy. I pray that you would teach us to cooperate with you, to look forward to the day of your salvation, to look forward to the day of your restoration, and in the meantime, to cooperate with what you're doing here on your earth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.